Good morning. Sorry, someone was supposed to get my board and they must have forgot. So uh, behind for a second here. Well, did you do it again this year? Did you spend more money for Christmas than you intended to spend? You were dead, yeah. You were dead set. We told ourselves we weren't going to do it again, right? We were going to stay within our budget. We were going to buy the things that were on the list, and we weren't going to get anything else. And then either our spouse or our kids walked up, and they batted their big blue eyes, and they're like, but Dad, if you don't buy me this present, my Christmas will be ruined. And so we gave in. And we bought the gift that we couldn't afford, but now it's January and the credit card bill is here and we're thinking, how am I going to pay for that Christmas I couldn't afford? Maybe for you it wasn't the gift, maybe it was traveling expenses and you were like, I thought we had enough and then the cost of travel like tripled this year. Or maybe it was your first time ever to host Christmas and you had no clue how much your parents had spent all those years to feed 20 people for one meal or 8 to 10 people living in your house for the course of a week. Or maybe if we're honest, money can just be our Achilles heel. And so it doesn't actually matter if it's December or March or June. Month after month, our expenses seem to outpace our income and we can't seem to get a handle on it. Now, if that's you, I want you to know you're not alone. And if you've entered 2023 stressed or anxious or beat down about money, I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to know you're not alone because I hate money. Like, I like to have it, but I hate managing it. It's super anxiety-ridden. I grew up in a fairly poor household. I knew that because nobody eats tuna casserole because they like it. Right? We just eat it because we can't afford anything else, so that's what we eat, right? But I figured out at a pretty young age how to make money. So by the time I was 14, I was making pretty good money. And my mom made sure that the first 10% went to the church and we tithed and did all those things. But I had 90% with no bills. And I can tell you, I figured out how to spend money just about as fast as anybody could possibly spend it. I would spend it eating out. We had open lunch so you didn't have to stay on campus. Again, I had free lunch at school, free lunch. But no, I'll go spend five or six dollars to eat at the fast food restaurant or at the pizza place across the street every week because I had money and I was going to spend it. I spent it on clothes. I spent it to give my buddy gas money because I had money, but I didn't have enough for the car, so I just paid him gas. I spent it on the girl at the time, and I figured out real fast that that's not actually the way life works. Because eventually I got a real job after I graduated college, and it had a salary. And I was like, oh, a salary's great, until I realized they pay you one set amount of money no matter how many hours you work. So you couldn't pick up another shift, you couldn't mow another yard, you couldn't cover the bills fast enough, you can't mow enough grass to pay rent. And so then we started putting it on credit card. And that adds up real fast. 
And interest is something I'm still not sure I understand, but I know that it compounds faster than I was paying the bill. And so after 15 or 20 years of living with this mindset of money, I still to this day just assume that there's a major bill we have forgotten to pay whenever there's money left over. Like there can't actually, this can't, or something's about to break that we can't afford anyway, right? So it's like, you just live with this anxiety and this worry. I tell you all that to say, if managing money is a struggle for you, you're not alone. My guess is there's actually people in this room who a lot of us would look around at and say, oh, there's no way you've ever struggled with money. And maybe some of those folks are deeper in debt than we actually can even fathom. According to Forbes magazine, September 2022, the combined American credit card debt, anybody got a guess? $925 billion that we as a combined people in America are in debt. $925 billion. You want me to break down that down a little bit? That's an average credit card debt of $8,942 per household. So when we hear that, my assumption are there are four groups of people in the room this morning. Those who, like me, are super anxious about money, no matter whether you have it or not, you're just worried and anxious about it. Two, you're so deep in debt you stop trying, and you're just keeping up the math so nobody knows. Three, you're the group that actually figured out how to manage money. You're doing great, and we need you to come, like, calm us and help us understand and, and to have a healthy relationship with money. And there's a fourth group that's also anxious, but you're anxious because you're in church and we're talking about money. And you're like, let's be honest, the church is really bad about talking about money. I know at the end of this message or sometime in the series, you're just going to tell me you want my money. Or you've, worse yet, been shamed or made to feel guilty about the way you've spent money, about the mistakes and misfortunes you've had. And so no matter where you'd place yourself in those four groups, my prayer for each one of us is that as we dive into this series about money, that we would see that God has a plan and a desire for us when it comes to money. And that the goal of his plan is freedom. It's not shame. It's not guilt. It's not anxiety. And my prayer is that maybe each one of us will be challenged to look at money differently. And maybe even begin to boldly ask ourselves the question, how do we embrace the freedom God desires for us? Because Jesus wants us to experience freedom financially. Jesus didn't come so we could live in bondage to this. He wants us to be free. It's not God's plan that we feel burdened by debt. God intended money to be a useful tool, not a stressful master. God wants us to live free. I quote this verse a lot. If you've been around, you've probably heard it. You're like, this makes it in like 50% of your sermons. But I think it is because if we would actually understand the power of this verse, it would transform everything about our lives. And that verse is John 10.10. And it says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus speaking, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying 
life. And I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, I want every one of you to be millionaires. But I do think he's saying, I came to set you free from this bondage. I came that you could have life that's satisfying. Life in me. As you live in a relationship with me. In a relationship with your heavenly father who loves you. Who will provide for you. It's the life of worship Paul kind of introduced for us last week. Some of us are asking, that sounds great. I'd love to be satisfied with the money I have. How? How do I get there? I think it starts by answering two questions. Well, we first have to ask ourselves these questions and then answer them. The first one is, who or what is ruling our lives? Who or what is ruling our lives? In order to answer that question, we're going to open up and camp out most of the time today in Matthew chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles or your phones, you want to open up, you can follow along on the Version Bible app if you want to there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, and we're picking up in a part of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's called that because Jesus is preaching a sermon on a mountain. So not super creative, but that's where he is. There's an audience around him, and he's introducing in what is his longest sermon recorded in Scripture, this idea about the kingdom of God. A different kingdom than the kingdom we live in. And as he's unpacking this, he's inviting those who are listening who are going to say, hey, we want to follow you. We want to be followers of you. He's inviting them to see what it looks like to live as a citizen in that kingdom. And so he goes through all of these different topics quickly in this sermon that he's going to help people understand what it means to live as a, kingdom, as a citizen in God's kingdom. And we're going to pick up in 619. And he says this, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths, moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your heart will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, there's a lot in these few verses for us to unpack this morning. But the first thing I want you to understand is I think we take that store up passage and we put a future perspective on it. And we go, oh, well, I'm either storing up money and resources here or I'm storing up something for my future life in heaven. The verb tenses in that passage are all present. It's not future. It's today. Where are we storing up our treasures. Jesus is asking his listeners and he's asking us today, what do you value? What do you truly value in your life today and how are you showing that to those around you? If you're here today and you would say, I identify as a follower of Jesus, I hope that you can look in your own life and see that you value things differently than your neighbor who might say, 
I'm an atheist. Our, our values, not, this is not a judgment statement. It's not a statement about our values are better, your values are worse, or your values are better and mine are worse. It's about, it's about there should be a difference. If I'm going to call myself a follower of Jesus, someone who's not following Jesus should have different values. As followers of Jesus, our value isn't tied to our bank account. It's not tied to my 401k. It's not tied to the size of house I live in or how new or fancy my car is. Though I will admit, the faster they go, the more fun they are to drive. But is that what we value? There's nothing intrinsically wrong with these things. But as followers of Jesus, we don't believe these things are going to make it to the next life. So why do we put so much value on them now? The true treasure, Jesus says, that we should be storing up is the presence of God in our lives. It's that presence of him who stepped out of heaven and into our life, into our world, that allows us to trust him. That gives us confidence that we won't be alone. That he'll be with us as we walk through this life. And it's in that that allows us to be generous to those around us. I think we miss the value of this because we have lost the idea of transcendence. I try not to use big words, but every once in a while it just makes me feel smart. <laughs> transcendence is really this concept that I think most of us, if we were really brutally honest, we go through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we're just trying to get on to the next thing. We get up. We shower, we eat, we go to work, we come home, we run out all the activities, we eat, we're tired, we watch TV, we go to bed, rinse, wash, rinse, repeat. I think that's what's on shampoo bottles. I haven't seen one in a long time. And that's what we do every day, right? And we don't think about anything that's not right in front of us. We don't think about things that we can't experience with our five senses. And in that, we don't think about God with us in the midst of that hurried life. We don't think about the, the fact that our lives are different than those around us. There's a being that transcends our senses, that stepped, that's outside our world, that stepped into our world and wants to be active in our lives. Do we believe that God is active in our Monday through Friday? Do we pause long enough to think about God being active in our Monday through Friday? Or are we just going about our business? Do we live like there's something after this life? Would our neighbors and coworkers say we live that way? Do we live like the instructions that he's given us matter? Or do they matter when they're convenient? Or when they fit into my already laid out plan. If not, I think what Jesus is saying in this passage is we should look at where our treasure really is. And he encourages us to do so in this kind of twist that sometimes doesn't make total sense to us because all of a sudden he's talking about our eyes, right? And we're like, wait, I thought we were talking about treasure and you're talking about eyes. And what he says about our eyes is they're really a light into our heart 
And they're a pathway for what's in our heart back out to the world. Our, per, our eyes provide a lens to look inward and outward at our actions. And Jesus says, if the eye's healthy, what the connotation of this passage is, is if your eye's healthy, it's flowing out of a heart of generosity. And if your eye is unhealthy, it's flowing out of a heart of greed. What I treasure in my heart reflects outwardly to those around me. And our inward orientation will always determine our outward behaviors. So if we're going to change the way we view money, we don't actually start with our checking account. We don't start with where we put our investments. We start by looking inward at our heart and asking ourselves some questions about what we truly treasure. And then Jesus sums up this passage. He said, what do you treasure? What, is in your, what are you valuing in your heart? And then he gets real clear. and He's like, listen, you can't serve two masters. You can serve God or you can serve money. My question for us today would be what sits on the throne of your life? And my guess is, as followers of Jesus, again, if we're honest, we say, we really want Jesus to be right here. In the, on the, this is my throne, right? I'm a great drawer. It's fantastic. I need to get somebody to pre-do these for me. We want Jesus to be on the throne. We want to be able to tell you every day of my life, Jesus sits right here. But it's not always the way it is. Sometimes it's a rotation. Sometimes it's my health. And how fit am I? And how much time am I spending at the gym? And how am I valuing what I look like? It's our politics. We're just going to skip that one for today. It's been a hard week. <laughs> how many of us get caught, parents, by putting our kids right here? It's all about our kids. It's all about what they want, what they need. It's about my favorite sports team. Here in Illinois, I know it's... It's hard to put that here. <laughs> Cubs, bears, it's just rough. It's almost Blackhawks season. You guys will have a good year. It'll be all right. Sex, money. Chick-fil-A is hard to pass up, right? I mean, it's Jesus chicken. It's got to be close. <laughs> but it's, it's Sunday, so it can't be there, right? <laughs> and then we put Jesus in the list. And we rotate through these things what we're serving, what's sitting on our throne. What's it going to take for each of us to look inside our lives and say, Jesus, this is your permanent seat. This is where I want you. That's where you belong. You see, anytime we allow one of these other things on that throne, we've committed idolatry. We don't talk about idolatry much because we don't have little idols that we bow down and pray to every day. We don't, or maybe we do, we just call them trophies. None of those things in that circle, though, are bad. They're all good. And that's what Tim Keller says is so dangerous, is that an idol is normally a good thing that we 
make an ultimate. Money is a powerful tool, but a controlling master. If we're going to live the satisfying life that Jesus wants for us, God has to be the one on that throne. Because if not, we will forever be a slave to whatever else is in that circle. Isn't it amazing how Satan takes the good things God gives us and twists them to enslave us instead of giving us freedom? So as you go about this week, as we answer this first question, I want to encourage you to stop like Paul did last week and think about what you're thinking about. What are the things that fill our minds, that fill our thoughts? My guess is that might be a key indicator of what's sitting on the throne. If you want to figure out if it's money, what does your checking account, or if that's old school because we just use our credit cards now and pay it off at the end of the month, what does your credit card statement say about what you value? What would your friends and coworkers say you value? And are you brave enough to ask? That's a big question. I'm not judging. I'm not sure I'm ready to ask that question. And once we've thought about and answered for ourselves, this is important. There's nothing wrong with asking ourselves these questions and answering them for ourselves. But what we like to do is answer them for everybody else. And that's where we get in trouble. I can't answer these questions for you unless you come to me and say, would you tell me what you think? We have a relationship. Would you tell? Then I can speak. Not my job to answer for everybody else, but for myself. And once we've answered those, are there habits that we need to change? Are there things we need to adjust or shift so that Jesus sits on this throne and never moves again? But we can't end there. We have one other question to ask ourselves. And that question is, do you have a scarcity or abundance view of money? One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, his name is Walter Brueggemann. He wrote an article, uh, you can find it online if you want, that talks about this idea, this tension that God offers and God is a God of abundance, but that we and the world provide us with a mindset of scarcity. And he argues that this theme fills the pages of scripture even from the very beginning. And let me, uh, let me, help unpack that a little bit. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, all the way back to Genesis, what do we learn about creation in Genesis chapter 1? We learn that at the end of every day, God says everything he created is good. And that everything God creates comes from the abundance of God's heart. And then he tells all the animals, all the birds, and us to be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't say be fruitful and add. Be fruitful and multiply because there is an abundance flowing. God says, I want you to live abundantly. Psalm 104 is the longest poem in all of scripture about this creation story in Genesis 1. And the psalmist writes about everything God has created in like verse after verse detail. If you want to read it, go home. It's like 
48 verses. I wasn't going to read it to you this morning. You can read through that whole thing and see, but in verse 27 and 28, the author says this. They all depend on you to give them food as they need it. When you supply it, they gather it. When you open your hand to feed them, they are richly satisfied. If we are living with an abundance mindset, with a belief that God has enough to give us abundantly. We believe that all of the universe sits in God's hand, that he created it, that he sustained it, that he has everything we need to live in abundance. We see that illustrated in the life of the Israelites. So if you're not familiar with the Bible in the Old Testament, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. God God sends Moses, takes them out. They walk in the desert. The Israelites are grumpy because there was better food in Uh, Again, what's their God? Food, Chick-fil-A. They wanted Chick-fil-A in Egypt, not the nothing there was to eat in the desert. And so what does God do? Out of his abundance, he brings them fresh bread every morning. And he tells them, there will be manna, is what it's called. There'll be manna on the ground. You just walk out, pick it up, eat it. Eat as much as you want, but don't save any of it. I'll supply more tomorrow. What do the Israelites do? They try to save it, right? They go out, they eat until they're sick, and they're like, well, maybe God won't. I don't, maybe God doesn't have enough to provide. We ate a lot today. Maybe God can't bake bread that fast. I don't, I don't know. And so they take it, and they put it on their, in their cabinets or on their shelves or in their tents, and they roll over the next morning to get that bread out, and it's rotten, and it's moldy. You see, when we believe in this scarcity mindset, we begin taking everything for ourselves. We can't be generous because there might not be anything else left. But the Israelites who live with this scarcity mindset walk out their tent the next morning to find fresh manna. But God says, I want you to have so much abundance. You didn't get a break in Egypt. You lived as slaves. You worked seven days a week for Pharaoh. I'm going to give you a day off. We'll call it the Sabbath. You rest on that day. But don't worry. On the day before that, you may collect bread for two days and it won't mold. And so sure enough, that's exactly what they do. They go out, they collect, they wake up on the Sabbath, the bread's still fresh, they have something to eat because God has abundantly supplied their needs. Jesus carries this on into the New Testament in what is probably one of my favorite or at least the miracle I want to see above all miracles and that's the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus has got his disciples, he's teaching, there's 5,000 adult men, we don't even know how many women and children are there. It's dinner time, Peter's like, hey Jesus, these people are hungry, we should send them home, and Jesus is like, we can feed them. And Peter's like, "Uh, I don't know where your reserves are, but we don't have any money to feed 10,000 people, 12,000 people who are here. And Jesus is like, what do you have? And Peter says, well, there's one little boy who's, he had one responsible mom packed her son lunch today. And he's got five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, I'll take it. And if you know the story, he takes it, blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it back out to everybody. And in what I love, I, this is where I want to see, does he like break the fish in half and the head grows back? Like, how does this happen? But they start passing out food. But the God of abundance is there. Five loaves, two fish, feed everybody with leftovers. It's like Thanksgiving dinner. And I think this is an object lesson for the disciples. 
Because how many disciples were there? Somebody still awake? 12? Okay, we got 12 disciples. That's right. It's not a trick question. There are 12 baskets of leftovers. So just like, hey, just in case you think I can't supply your needs, carry, carry leftovers. Five loaves, two fish, 12 baskets of leftovers. We serve a God who abundantly supplies our needs. If we live in abundance, if we live with an abundance mindset, we will be more generous, we'll share, we can experience joy, and we can have life when it comes to our finances. But when we believe in a life of scarcity, we worry, we get anxious, we're greedy, and we want control. And that's exactly where Jesus goes in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. We don't have time to read it this morning. But if you look at that, Jesus is like, don't worry about money. Don't worry about clothes. Don't worry about these things. God supplied them for the birds and the flowers. Doesn't he care more about you than those things? And ultimately what he's getting at is he steps all over my toes when I read that passage because I'm always worried about money. I'm always anxious. It's why Corey pays the bills because I honestly don't think there's going to be anything there at the end. He's asking the question, do you have faith that I'm the God of abundance? And that's a tough question for us to ask because the other answer is God... I actually think I'm better with my money than you are. So stay off. That's the question Jesus is asking us as we walk through this. We have a God who Paul says in Ephesians is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Infinitely more than we can even imagine. God has the power to supply. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in this inward mindset because when we become fearful, it all becomes about us. It becomes about protecting what I have. We stop looking at the needs of those around us. We stop caring if anybody else has enough. We just start gathering for ourselves. And Paul has words for people like that in 1 Timothy 6. He says, teach those who are rich in this world And I know we might not all feel rich, top 10% of the world, everybody in this room, at least the top 10% of the world. Everybody. Not to be proud and not to trust in money, which is so unreliable. Right? Anybody watch Stock Market in 2022? So unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good, that they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience life. Isn't it interesting that all of Scripture comes back to two commands. Love God and love people. Church, we get to show God how much we love him when we trust that he will provide. When we let go of our fear and our anxiety and we say, God, I believe that you will supply my needs. 
and we get to love others. When we are generous and share out of our wealth what they need. The challenge of both Matthew and 1 Timothy is in whom do we trust? If we trust in money, we're going to continue to struggle. Because you're never going to feel like you have enough. Money comes and goes. However, if we allow God's plan and follow God's plan to live generously, trust that he'll provide. He'll give us eyes to see the needs around us. And he'll provide more than we can ever imagine. My boys get to be the butt of a lot of stories in my sermons. But they teach me an awful lot that you don't get to hear about. So they have jobs. Ethan has jobs. I'm his boss. He gets paid a couple dollars to do some things around the house. Josiah mows some grass and makes some money. And they, every once in a while, they'll be, we try to teach them to tithe, so they bring money to church, or there'll be a special thing that they're doing in kids' town or breakaway or a culture shift where they bring money or there's something at school they want to take money to. And it's happened on more than one occasion. They come downstairs and they know that their mom and I have zero cash, hardly ever. And they're like, hey, all I've got to 20, so I'm just going to give it all. I really am only supposed to take five, but I'll just take 20 and whoever else wants it can have it. Or we can give more than we're supposed to give. And I, I stop for a minute. And I'm like, are you, are you sure you want to do that? We can probably find two tens around here. And I try to talk them out of this generous mindset that they have. Because Ethan has like $25 to his name and he's about to give 20 of it away. What he's doing subconsciously though is trusting. He trusts that when there's a real need, I'll supply it. Maybe he's trusting God will supply it, but I think practically he's probably thinking, Dad will give me some more allowance. It'll be okay. But what I'm challenged by in that is do I trust my Heavenly Father who loves me to supply that same need? And what would it look like if we began to live life that way? And so whether they know it or not, they're teaching me a lot about what it means to be generous and what it means to live in the financial freedom that Jesus wants us to experience. But if we're going to experience that financial freedom, we have to take the time and ask ourselves these two questions. And I hope you spend some time thinking about it this week. Who's ruling our lives? And do we have a scarcity or abundance view of money? As you wrestle through those questions for yourself, I hope you find somebody you can talk to. You can like, get some input in in those, whether it's a spouse or a friend or maybe it's a life group. I think this would be a great place for our life groups to start talking and asking some hard and uncomfortable questions because we love each other and we want to help see each other grow. And if you're not in one, it's a great time to sign up. There's four tables out there. You can sign up in the lobby on your way out. But I also don't think it's by any mistake that Jesus took that boy's bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it back. Because those are the same four words 
that Jesus used as he sat in the upper room with his disciples. And they celebrated communion for the first time. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body given for you. This comes down to we trust. Do we trust that the God who gave his life on the cross will supply our needs? Has a plan for our money? Wants us to be free? And so in just a moment, as we come and we celebrate communion, I want you to remember John 10.10. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. As we come to the communion table, we remember the brokenness of Friday. The broken bread. The crucified Savior. But we celebrate the abundance of Sunday. When Jesus walked out of the grave, conquering sin, giving us life, giving us a relationship with the Father, and showing us what true love really was. And so as we come to celebrate, we remember that sacrifice that Jesus paid and our trust in him for all things. Now, if you're new to Great Oaks, we do celebrate communion. We invite anybody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus to come up and take communion. The, the usher who is serving will hand you the bread. You can dip it in the cup. You can take that back to your seat if you want to spend some time talking to Jesus or as a family, you can take it right there. That's up to you. We just hope that you remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid for each and every one of us. So as the ushers come now to prepare, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you want a relationship with us, that you even want to be on our throne. God, that's you at work. And we're so thankful for that. God, as we come and celebrate communion, may we remember that we serve and we follow a God who laid down his life for us, and who's worthy of our trust, who's worthy of our faith, in all areas of our lives, including our money. God, make us a people who follow you. Thank you so much for Jesus, for what he did that we could never do on our own. We pray all this in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come as you're ready.